0: Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this
2: is The Buck Sexton Show.
1: All right, team, welcome to our 308 in the Freedom Hut. Our Freestyle Friday continues. Very special guest now, Kamal Ravikant. He's been a U.S. Army infantry soldier, held the hands of dying patients, climbed in the Himalayas, spoken to audiences around the world, walked 550 miles across Spain, meditated with Tibetan monks, and worked with some of the best people in Silicon Valley. He's also a best-selling author. His first book is Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It, which became a massive bestseller. You can get it now on Amazon. His newest book out just now, Rebirth, A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart. He's also a dear friend of mine and a fantastic guy. Kamal Khan. welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir.
3: <laughs> Buck, it's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having
1: me. Uh, Kamal, tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the book. You have quite a story. <clears throat> I do. Um, I'm uh,
3: I'm actually, I was born in India, and uh, we came to this country when I was a little kid, and uh, my mom um, left, we have, you know, my parents divorced, and my mom raised my brother and I on no money, single mom, <clears throat> you know, minimum wage. You know, there was, uh, we came from like a, real, we lived in a very, very hard, we lived in Jamaica, Queens, came from a very, you know, difficult part, uh, you know, which is where you used to get jumped every day trying to go to school. And uh, eventually, when I, I graduated high school, and I went to college for a year, and I left college, and I said, "Screw this!" and I joined the army. And I was uh, 11 Bravo. I was an infantry soldier. And uh, then went to college after that. And uh, after that, I uh, traveled around a bit and moved out to Silicon Valley for the dot-com boom. And just threw myself in and started building companies. And that's when the you know—we were actually creating the internet then. And ended up like the first company. Ended up got involved and helped build. Ended up going public and doing really well. And then since then, I've been involved with startups, you know, some that I've done well, some that blew up, which is part of the startup game. And, um, and uh, now I run a venture fund where I actually invest in Internet startups. So I get to actually work with the best of the best entrepreneurs, and I get to help them, and I, get, and I really get to see the future. It's like the best job in the world. And at the, on the, Also, I write these books. Um, the books have nothing to do with technology or venture capital. The books are all about just being your personal best self, you know, things I've learned in my life. And, um, you know, those do very well, too. So that's kind of a bit of a bit of my background. Huh?
1: Yeah. Come on. Tell me b- before we get into the latest book, I actually would like you to tell everybody listening about your first book, which was a, a huge bestseller, which you self-published. Yeah. Love yourself self-published. like your life depends on it. I have it on my bookshelf. I have read it. But I want you to tell everybody about both what led up to this book and, and what you what the message is.
3: Yeah, um, look, putting that book out changed my life, I, and it came from a life-changing experience. And when I was building my last company, uh, this was about five years ago, and I I'd, I'd put all my money into it, and I, you know, the classic entrepreneur journey, I hadn't taken a day off in three and a half years, just worked myself to the bone, and I um, took some investor money, everything was going great, and the whole thing blew up, and I lost everything. Um, you know, like I was, like here I was, like a, all the money I saved for the years was gone. I was in credit card debt, and I was really sick. I was just worn out and sick, and the doctors were like, they were throwing all sorts of weird diagnoses that you know they they weren't sure, and I was depressed out of my mind. Actually, you know, I'd, I'd say if depressed would be a good day, and I was miserable. I was suicidal, and and um, one morning I woke up. I'm like, I can't, I can't live this way anymore. I'm gonna get out of this or die trying. And, I, I, you know, I, sometimes I write thoughts in a journal, and I remember I was so exhausted, so sick. I, like, crawled over and then got up and just, like, went to my journal, grabbed a pen, and carved in a vow to myself. And I don't know where this vow came from. It's one of those moments, if you want to call it a spiritual moment or, like, something bigger than me made to put this vow to love myself. I was going to figure out how to love myself because I just hated myself. I hated my life. I just hated everything. And I thought I, the, the very opposite of where I was, I felt was going to be love and I wrote as a vow to myself, and I'm a huge believer, believer in commitment. You know, when you make commitment to yourself, you know, you, you don't burn the ships behind you, you explode them behind you. And I set out to do that and, like, locked in my bedroom, sick. I sat to just, just work on my inside because that's all I could do. I couldn't go out and be around people. I just worked on my inside, and things started to shift. And within, like, a month, my entire life had shifted, and all I did was work on my inside. And so – I started, and so once I got better, I started sharing this with friends, and they, it would really help them. And so, like eventually, you know, to, the you know people come to ask me to shut them up. I wrote this little book, and um, I'd also made a commitment to a friend that I would write it. And I, you know, I wrote this. You know, I spent a month writing it. I really just distilled down what I wish someone had told me when I was a bottom that would have helped me. And I self-published it. I took a big risk on my career because you know it was very honest. It was a picture of a guy with a gun to his head and a big heart, because it's the heart that saves. And, I, you know, I thought I'd sell, like, 10 copies, you know, eight of them bought by me to give to friends, and I was going to destroy my career at Silicon Valley. And a month later, it was the number one self-help book on Amazon. And it's gone on to, I mean, it's hundreds sold hundreds of thousands of copies. You know, I get, I'd get run into people in the streets that tell me, like, it changed their lives. I get emails telling me, you know, if you stopped from committing suicide. And all it was was sharing just something that I did, you know, and how anyone can do it step by step. Um, it was the best best experience of my life. You know, really taking a risk, just sharing my true self—not this startup guy, not this entrepreneur, not this guy who's that, got his shit together, but a guy who failed and like worked on on his inside to be better. So that's the story of the book. Uh,
1: and anybody who wants to can go on. Uh, love yourself like your life depends on it. On. We type it in Google, but also if you go to Amazon, it's available. It's eight thousand words, so it's it's a quick read, but a, a profound read. And just you can look at the reviews on Amazon and see it, it has changed. People love love this uh, this manifesto really to love yourself. Um, and then, but I want to talk to you about the new book, Kamal, Rebirth: mm-hmm. A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Falling Your Heart. Also on Amazon. Talk to me about Rebirth.
3: Yeah, Rebirth is actually a novel that I, that's actually available in any bookstore you go to. Um, I, it's something that I've worked very hard on for years, but, and, and because I believe that ultimately as human beings, we learn best through stories. So I took this experience of my life when I was 25, my dad died, and I was you know you. I wasn't close to him, but he asked me to take his ashes to Ganges because that's where he's from. And I took his ashes there, and, <clears throat> but instead of coming back, I wandered for eight months. I had no money, I had a backpack. I just wandered around the world. And you know, just after a series of events, I ended up in Spain and walking an old Christian pilgrimage in Spain called the Camino de Santiago. It's been around since the 11th century, and I w- it was 550 miles from one end of Spain to the other. And I'm walking it, and I met these amazing people along the way, and they shared with me stories of their lives, and they taught me so much. And that's actually where I was able to like come to terms with the death of my father and forgive him. And that's where freedom comes from ultimately is forgiveness. You know, that's the irony. It's like almost like we need to forgive for ourselves, not for others. And so I took that story, I wrote this book that takes place in the community of Santiago, but since my you know, since my twenties, I've learned so much more in my life. So I layered that into the story. Um, and so that's what rebirth is. It's ultimately a story about, you know, following your hearts, you know, it's all the things I've learned when you hit bottom and how you can use that to actually rise to your personal greatness. You know, it's about forgiveness. It's about following your heart. It's 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 about love. It's about letting go. It's about finding new love. Like so, you know, it's a lot of my life journey into this story. And it's it's uh, it just came out two weeks ago, and the response has been just beautiful. You know, like the first email I got, uh, you know, because I put my email on one of my books, was was blew my mind. It was a woman. She said, I remember her name was Victoria, and she said, you know, I read your book. And I want to let you know, I just got out of prison eight months ago, and I've been really having a hard time forgiving myself and coming to touch touching my humanity. And your book really helped me do that. Thank you. And that's just, that's why I write. Uh, and I'm really grateful for this book out there. And, uh, yeah, that's the new book, Rebirth.
1: What is the most powerful for you, uh, Kamal? What's the most powerful physical location you've ever been to in terms of its impact on your psyche, your spirituality, or sense of well-being because you've done quite a bit of traveling and you've traveled to places that people go because they're trying to, they're searching or they're, you talk about this, yeah. uh, this 500 mile, 550 miles across Spain, uh, for you, if, if you had to pick one place, what was the one that really sticks with you the most?
3: Oh man, that's a great question. You know, it could be the Himalayas. It could be even Big Sur in California, which is such an amazing place. Um, I do if it could even be boot camp before full Georgia. It was a hell of an experience, right? I'm uh, sure it was. Know you, probably, probably a big sir. You know, you know, I said someone the other day, um, I think when I was on I a show, and I was saying, you know, I wish every, every American do, could, could do a cross-country tour and just see just the massive beauty and how it changes in this land. You know, I was fortunate that I've done that. And I would say just the vastness of the West Coast, you know, when you're out there, just the massive mountains. And when you reach Big Sur, just these mountains falling into the Pacific Ocean and you're driving on these windy roads around there, you just feel like you just feel it all. It's, it's probably my I think you could,
1: I think it's a very strong argument you made. And I've, I've driven that, what is it, Highway 1? I've done that drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big Sur is physically, at least from what I've seen, is the most beautiful place in the country. I, you can argue that. I know a lot of people say, oh, no, there's you know Yellowstone or there's some national park or there's maybe the you know, the oak tree down the street from where they grew up. Everyone's allowed, entitled to their own opinion on this, but Big Sur is certainly uh, very high up on that list. Uh, the book is Rebirth, A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart. You guys can also all follow Kamal on Twitter at Kamal Ravikant, R-A-V-I-K-A-N-T, Hopefully, this is going to be another runaway bestseller like his last one, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. Kamal, my friend, great to have you, sir. We'd love to have you come back and hang out with us anytime. I would love it. Thanks for having me. All right, my man. See you soon. Uh, 888-900-3393, team. We'll be back in just a few. Buck Buck
0: Sexton, dispensing the truth.
2: On the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton Show.
1: All right, team, we've got some calls in. Ryan in Virginia, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome.
3: Hey, Buck, I got a movie line for you. All right. All right. We're sort of like 7-Eleven. We're not always doing business,
1: but we're always open. Uh, it's. I like the line. I have no idea what it is, though, so we, we, we could hit the buzzer on that oh. one. What is it?
0: Oh, R- Boondock
3: Saints.
1: Scene, I'm going to tell you the right truth, man. The- I've been I've been told to see that a million times. I have never seen that movie.
3: Well, count it as a million and one. You one. You've got
1: to see that movie. I think it's I think it's, it's, I think it's on Amazon Prime reason. or on Netflix. I feel like I saw it recently for free, so maybe I will check it out. Yeah, man, you got to do it. All right, cool. Got what it. do you think of the inauguration?
3: Um, I think that it was hyped up. Uh, that it was going to be, uh, and I just knew it was that there was going to be the wall of meat and the motorcycles and that there was going to be a lot of commotion. And I, I feel like it's just a normal process that's happened over and over again. And there's a lot of momentum behind that process that happens every four years or every eight years. And so it just went according to plan. That's what I feel.
1: All right. Thank you for calling in, sir. Shields high. Garth in Louisiana. You're on the Buck Sexton show. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Buck. Good afternoon, sir.
2: a uh, couple of things. You know, almost every time I hear your name, I thought, man, you would be the perfect front man for like a, a band, like a wedding reception band or high school prom band. Imagine it, Buck Sexton and a Sexton. That's just perfect. I think it's great.
1: I, I just need yeah. to learn how to I just need to learn how to play guitar, but I'm with you.
2: One guitar and sing. There you go. Uh, all right. Here's a movie quote. And do you want me to do it with the accents or without? I guess with the accents would help
1: you. I feel like uh, if I if I could take a poll of the audience right now, they would want to hear you do it with the accent, probably. But then, okay. wait, wait, wait. wait what, what kind of accent is it? Hold on.
2: Uh, Asian? Can I can I do? No.
1: Asian? No. <laughs> no. So just do the just do the line.
2: Okay. Just do the line. Okay. All right. You're a real pain in the ass. And the other guy says, because that is the shortest route to your brain. And then there's one right after that. These are both at the end of the movie. One guy says, you're incredible. And the other guy says, no, I am better than that.
1: Uh, the, the Hangover?
2: No. It's, it's kind of a B movie, kind of an action comedy. Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins.
1: Wait, what? I've never. Okay, this is the first. I've never even heard of this. Remo Williams. Never the heard, adventure begins. Remo
2: Williams. It's a early. It's a mid eighties, maybe. Uh, Fred Ward, Joel Gray plays the Asian guy. A uh, young Kate Mulgrew. Remo Williams.
1: I, I yeah. Um, I've never even heard of it, so I'll have, to, I'll have to check this out, man. I mean, you definitely stumped me. I'm assuming that's an action movie because you're saying it is, and
2: yeah, it, I will it's kind of I, become a cult. Kind of become a cult classic somewhat. Uh, but it's i uh, it's worth it's worth a, a one-time
1: look. Garth, what is other than New Orleans, the best city to visit in Louisiana since we got a Louisiana man on the line here.
2: Oh, I'm I'm from Baton Rouge. Love Baton Rouge, been there my whole life.
1: Baton Rouge is way to go. So a fun place for the weekend. I'm looking for a weekend getaway sometime soon. You think coming out of Baton Rouge it'll be a good oh, time? I, All right, I'm up. Yeah, you'll find
2: something to do I mean, obviously being. New Orleans. is. Uh, it depends what you like to do. If, if you like to get smashed, drunk, then yeah, go to New Orleans. But anywhere you go in Louisiana, great food. Do your research ahead of time. Find the good restaurants to go to because we're definitely all about our food down here.
1: Alright, sounds good. Thank you very much, Garth. Shield good to talk to you. Speaking of movies, uh, I, I think there's a pretty seamless transition we're making here. You have the... Uh, that's chattering now about how there is some similarity between Donald Trump's inauguration speech and a speech given by the villain from uh, the Batman movie, Bane. Oh, speak of the devil, and he shall appear. Uh, that that guy, my Bane impression probably needs some work, but it's just general. It's in the right. It's in the right general spot. You know. Yes, I can't really be understood because I have this metal thing over my face. Um, but this is the line, and this is catching catching uh, catching people's attention on social media right now. Trump said to the gathered crowd in DC quote, Today's ceremony has a very special meaning because today we're not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another. We are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Uh, that's a pretty straightforward. I don't think there's anything that you're going to see there that should give anyone a moment of pause. What's the big deal? And then there's what Bain said, though, on the steps of Gotham's Blackgate prison. We take Gotham from... No, I'll stop. Okay. We take Gotham from the corrupt, the rich... The oppressors of generations who have kept you down with myths of opportunity and we give it to you, the people. Well, I don't. Well, that's not. Sim- that's not similar. You know, first of all, all this rhetoric about And I got to be honest, the. Uh, the whole thing about politicians saying it's not it's not about me, it's about you. It's like the oldest trick in the book. So let's all just be straightforward about that, right? This is today is really about all of you. I mean, yeah, okay. You know, sure. It's kind of also about the person that's taking power. But I I know, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I know what's being said. Uh it it does though just sort of sound all the same after a while with, you know, this is really about all of you. It's not quite as bad as when people get an award at the Oscars or something and this isn't for me. This is for all of the and insert, you know, little people, insert oppressed group, insert, uh, and I meant like the little people out there, not little people, as in, you know what I mean? You know, like don't forget the little people when you're all big and famous. Got to be, you know, these days, terminology, man, it's it's uh, a thing you got to always keep an eye on. Um, one thing I, I really am excited about with the Trump presidency is maybe now it'll be harder for the left. To destroy people, particularly in media, who say one thing with no ill intent or who make some mistake in their wording or who, you know, one of the make some mistake in any context and they can't just be drummed out of the out of the public square. Oh, so horrifying. Did you hear what he said? I think when you have a President Trump, it'll be a lot easier for people to say, "Um, look at this guy. That's the president of the United States. Look at the way he speaks and talks about things. I'm going to get in trouble for saying what exactly? What did I say again? Yeah. One of the biggest benefits, I think, of a Trump presidency, people talk about dashing political correctness. I'm hoping that it changes a lot about what we can get in trouble for and what we can't. So that alone will be one of the uh, good outcomes of having Donald Trump as president of the United States is that the bar for what you can get in trouble for saying, I hope, becomes a higher bar. More coming.
2: The Buck Sexton Show, on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Freestyle Friday continues with a special guest, Benerson Little. He is the author of the book, The Golden Age of Piracy The Truth Behind Pirate Myths. He's a pirate expert, uh, pe- expert who's appeared in multiple TV documentaries. He is the historical consultant for the Black Sales series on Stars, a show that I enjoy and actually has its final season coming up here in just about a week. He also served in the U.S. Navy as a Navy SEAL and he has worked as a special operations and intelligence analyst in the past. Fascinating resume. Uh, we really are excited to have Benerson Little with us now. Thank you for calling in. Uh,
0: thank you for having me.
1: Uh, all right, let's start with the the broad strokes about pirates, the golden age of piracy in the, in the Caribbean. You've got the show Black Sails. You consult on that. Tell me about some of the the big names, and the big figures from from this period. Uh, Blackbeard, Charles Vane, some of these individuals. What is the story behind them? Why do we still know their names today?
0: Well, we know their names primarily because they were Anglo-American pirates, and because of a guy named Charles Johnson who wrote a fascinating book about them. Um, These really weren't the greatest um, Anglo-American pirates at all. You had some bigger pirates in the late 17th century. But these guys got a lot more press. Um, they really weren't quite the badasses we think they were. Um, you put them up against the Royal Navy, for example, they did, generally didn't fare very well. Um, and a good example I like to use is uh, Blackbeard's last fight. You know, you, you'll read all kinds of accounts about that and how they kill, he killed a bunch of the British sailors who were coming to get him. But if you distill it right down to the final hand-to-hand combat action, where the numbers were roughly equal, let's say 10 or 12 on each side, going hand-to-hand, close combat. These Royal Navy sailors and volunteers wiped the pirates out to a man, killed every one of them that they actually engaged in hand-to-hand combat with, while every one of these Royal Navy sailors was still standing. Some of them were seriously wounded, but they were still standing. Um, Again, it's mostly uh, the very positive press that we've had on these guys and the fact that in some ways they were rebelling. against the loss of uh, three or four generations of tradition of sea roving, especially against the Spanish. Um, that was cut short at the end of Queen Anne's War. Uh, they were told to pack it up and go home. Uh, they didn't like that answer, and so they um, took to the black flag and turned against um, ships of any nation.
1: Now in the series Black Sails on on which you consult and I've seen it all the way up to current uh, the, the current season's I mean the next season's coming out I think in a week or so so I've seen all three seasons or four seasons so far uh yeah, and and fine. Long John Silver is is also one of the characters. Uh I don't know any of his backstory. Why see? I mean there's even a, a a fish store chain named after him.
0: Uh he's purely fictional, you know, um Robert Louis Stevenson invented the character. Um, Steven was fairly accurate when it came to pirates. He made them bad guys, which is what most of them were. Um, But he created this fascinating character, Long John Silver, and what Black Sails, the writers uh, and showrunner, have done is develop this interesting backstory about how he might have come into being had he been a real person. Um, The show is very, very much about um, friendship and honor and betrayal and these very strong Shakespearean characters. Um, They've done a very, very good job, I think, portraying that. Um, And I do like the way they've um, presented Long John Silver, kind of this balance between Flint, who has his one goal for, you know, thwarting the Empire and creating this independent pirate colony on New Providence, and then Long John Silver, who's kind of a foil against him, and is leading everybody in another direction. Uh, I can't get too much into that. Uh, beyond that, um, it's a great fourth season that's coming up. Um, everything from the drama to a, a lot of very classic um, set pieces, action at sea, um, things like that. So, who are
1: the who are the historical figures that are who, who does so? We mentioned Charles Vane. Who else has a ba- and uh, the character Blackbeard? Who else has some historical roots that appears on the show? Um,
0: the, the only other main character. Um, that would appear on that show would be um, Anne Bonny's uh, lover, and that would be about it. Um, trying to think, if there's any other main characters. There's been a number of minor characters on the well, show. A-
1: Anne Bonnie was a real was a, it was a a lady pirate, right, or a lady companion of a pirate.
0: She was. Um, the show has done what uh, most pirate films and um, pirate novels have done. And that's kind of combined her character with that of Mary Reed. Uh, They always like Anne Bonny because she's supposed to be sexy. And they also kind of turn her into um, very much a um, warrior-type woman as well. Um, The historical Anne Bonny probably had no experience at all in arms. But Mary Reed, uh, her companion in adventure, companion in arms, did. But she's kind of a combination of both characters in the show. Now, where do we get these... I'm sorry, sorry. go ahead. 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 Oh, no, I was just mentioning Jack Rackham, you know, would be the other major historical character. Although, truthfully, we probably wouldn't know much about him today except for the fact that he was Anne Bonny's lover. You know, the women got all the press, you know, because they really weren't women pirates during the Golden Age, except for these two. And so Jack Rackham kind of got his um, name a lot better known because he was affiliated with Anne Bonny.
1: Now, a lot of our perception of pirates and not including the perception that has been molded by uh, Johnny Depp uh, pretending to be a member of the Rolling Stones, pretending to be a pirate, uh, you know, recently in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, uh, but Robert Louis Stevenson, right? Treasure Island. So that that is, I think, probably the most famous literary work ever on, on this uh, on this period. Uh, but we have these perceptions that that continue this day of. Uh, guys with a, a, a guy with a sort of wooden peg leg, a cutlass, a parrot eye patch, and sort of flowing, you know, sort of bright colored clothing, the Jolly Roger. What what of this stuff is real, and what is just kind of our imaginations having taken over?
0: It's kind of a mis mash. There's some truth to a lot of that. Um, Most seamen probably may have picked up a parrot, for example, in their travels. You know, um, exotic birds were popular then. They're uh, popular now. But, you know, it's not necessarily a a symbol of a pirate, for example, just like the eye patch. um, If a pirate might have, you know, lost an eye for disease or through battle, sure, he'd probably wear a black patch. But other than that, you know, there's no reason to associate that uh, with piracy. It's a primary literary Um, followed by a lot of 19th century illustrators who developed this almost caricature of what the pirate should look like. There's still a certain degree of truth to it. A lot of pirates, not all of them, but a lot of pirates, especially in the late 17th century, did dress very flamboyantly uh, when they could. But most of them were common seamen, and they would have dressed like common seamen.
1: Who was the uh, you mentioned before that there are some names that we know, but we know them for reasons that don't necessarily have to do with their record of piracy. Uh, Who was the the true scourge of the the British Royal Navy in the Caribbean? Uh, Who who was who were the 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 pirates that had uh, created the most havoc against the authorities of the day in in the late 17th and uh, early 18th century?
0: Well, you almost have to separate the um, two periods. The late 17th century, you essentially you have piracy or buccaneering and las Libus, as the French would have called it, um, which was government-supported, either you know, with a wink and a nod or quite openly at times. And these guys sailed against the Spanish. They helped protect um, English and French colonies against um, uh, Spanish uh, reprisals primarily. And they brought a lot of silver into the colonies to help them stay stable. Um, you're looking here at Henry Morgan, for example, on the English side, um, uh, Laurence de Graff, who was a Dutchman in French service um, on the French side. These were some very, very uh, successful uh, freebooters in the late 17th century.
1: As you go into the early
0: 18th century, um, uh, Blackbeard was moderately successful, probably... Um, Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the names that were the most successful um, early 18th century. And by success, I mean these guys captured a lot of merchant shipping. Um, They were not successful in terms of the Royal Navy except by evading them. When it came to one-on-one action against the Royal Navy or any well-trained Navy, pirates generally lost and lost badly. You know, there's a difference. Pirates, their goal was to go out and grab uh, merchant shipping, and merchants tended not to fight back. Royal Navy, however, was trained to close with an enemy and pound the hell out of it, you know, basically kill the enemy, force them to surrender, one or the other. Um, Pirates, it it wasn't a good business to get in that kind of fight. Um, They they weren't trained for that kind of fighting. They didn't drill for that kind of fighting. And because they were uh, democratically organized, they could basically pick and choose their fights as well. And while a captain had full authority in battle, um, there's a certain degree of democratic process when you align it with military actions, which isn't always the best way to um, fight a battle, for example.
1: But, but so that part of black sails is accurate then, the whole voting for the captain and the politics on, on board ship and, and on shore of who's going to be in charge, that actually happened?
0: That's all very, very accurate. It was um, very much democratic. It was very, very ugly democracy because which democracies by nature are very, very messy. Um, and you had just as many factions among pirates. In fact, you had as, just as many um, types of people, personalities, you name it, but among pirates as you did um, among any modern democracy. Everybody, all of the power struggles and everything else. Um, Black Sails depicted that very, very well. And that was one of the things I was proudest of at the show is that they actually went into this, and they didn't whitewash it. They showed how... You have different competing factions. Um, it's all ugly. And
1: was, was Nassau a, a pirate a pirate hub? I mean, now we think of Nassau at least you know in the states we think of it as uh, a place you go on vacation in the Bahamas. It's pretty. It's quiet. There's you know a casino or two. Whatever. Uh, Nassau it, was a real pirate hub in its day.
0: It was very briefly uh, a few times in the late 17th century. Basically, the English Crown owned it, but they it was very unproductive and it was very hard to keep a government there um spanish raided it a few times uh but it was a, a natural um little kind of a central focus point for um anybody who was trying to get away um from the mainstream and that included pirates um, it was a good place for them to settle down it was ideally located you had quick access not only to the caribbean but to the north coast of the americas um, problem was the English government with Woods Lodgers shut it down pretty quickly, and once they did that, pirates kind of dispersed, and because the English government especially did not have enough navies um, in North America or the Caribbean, and they didn't um, address enough assets for the suppression of piracy, Uh, The pirates fanned out from there and basically tried to stay one step ahead of any pursuers and just, you know, sailed from place to place, eventually ending up primarily on the coast of Africa, um, grabbing merchant shipping as they could, um, grabbing slave ships, ransoming them back to their owners. Um, But they really, without a a strong base and a strong infrastructure, they weren't going to last for very long. And eventually, when governments actually got serious about suppressing them, same thing with Somali piracy they shut them down very quickly.
1: Benerson, before we let you go, and I know you're a consultant for the TV show, black sales, but if you had to recommend one pirate movie, what's the first one that comes to mind?
0: Oh, captain blood. I know it's, it's fantasy, but I love that movie. It's the, the 30, 1935 version with Errol Flynn. Um, it, it's probably the best pirate film ever made. It's again, it's, it's a lot of it's pirate fantasy, but it's, it's a very, very enjoyable movie. Um, after okay. that, i say Treasure Island with Charlton
1: Heston. All right, fantastic. Benerson Little, thank you for your service, sir. I know you were a Navy SEAL, and I uh, want to make sure everybody knows about your book, The Golden Age of Piracy, The Truth Behind Pirate Myths. You can get it up on Amazon, and you can go to Benerson's website, bennersonlittle.com. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate you joining us today.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Team, we'll be right back. Uh, Buck Sexton. The
0: Blaze Radio Network. listening to The Buck Sexton Show.
1: Well, as Trump now is the president, is the commander-in-chief, it might just be fun one more time. We'll probably do this more in the future as well. Just take a little stroll down memory lane for how the press reacted to Trump's candidacy announcement. Play it. There are no words. How do you even have a straight face right now? There are no words to describe... What just happened.
3: <laughs>
1: Ed Randell, do you have any doubt that
3: this is anything more than a carnival show?
1: And you watched that speech today, we all laugh about it, and I'm sitting here laughing out loud, you know, yep. you know, for, for the entire,
3: you know, front part of the show here as we're talking about it.
1: I mean, it was a rambling, a rambling mess of a speech. That said, it was very entertaining. I
2: was howling, howling. He's got gmudgeons of money. He's got a lot of recognition. And he just became the 12th presidential candidate for the Republican Party.
0: Uh, Is it typical Donald Trump fashion or is it hilarity run amok?
1: Hilarity run amok. Well, it's not so funny anymore. Don't think anyone's going to be laughing about that one right now. Look, I agree. It seemed like no way at the time but yep there was a way and anyone who thought there was it was wrong so we have to admit all that uh team definitely want to hear your thoughts on today's show i know we've been mixing up a lot with guests on fridays uh, so give me you know give me your thoughts maybe we'll do a post with the different guests and i want your comments on who you liked and and who maybe you weren't necessarily as into maybe one of them you want to hear from again in the future um so i like to do Freestyle Friday with all of you in mind, so please do let me know your thoughts. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Best place to uh, put those uh, those down on the screen for me to read. Uh, Next week, Monday and uh, Tuesday, I'm in here in the Freedom Hut. I believe Wednesday I'm going to be in for Mr. Rush Limbaugh on the EIB, which is very exciting. Um, Until then, of course, have a fantastic weekend. Enjoy your inauguration celebration or non-celebration, no matter what. My friends, she'll tie.
0: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.